Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. I'm speaking on another one of our sermon series on scriptural speed bumps, the parts of the Bible that trip us up. These are the ones that trouble us, cause us concern, make us a little uncomfortable on our faith journey. As Sarah has said, we cannot ignore them, so we confront them and deal with them head on. We heard from Pastor Sarah last Sunday about the passage that quoted Jesus, we will always have the poor with us. Today we look at Mark 10:25, the camel in the eye of the needle. To understand more fully what is going on in this passage, we must look at the full scripture in the context of what Jesus is saying. This comment is part of a larger story that is being used to teach a far greater principle. And I have to digress for a minute from my script here because at 9.30, the children come up for children's time and then go to children's worship. And we had about 15 or 16, maybe 17 kids up here. Karen Rubendahl was up and she actually, you know, no kidding, broke out a sewing needle and then broke out a little stuffed camel and tried to make that work. And of course, ah, that doesn't work. Then Karen, from memory, went through the scripture <laughs> that I'm about to lead you through today, verse by, fir- by verse, and, uh, and, and made actually the whole sermon right there in front of us. And I'm not sure what I'm doing here, but at any rate, when they left to go to the fellowship hall, I suggested we just go to the uh, offertory and the benediction. But you get to sit through for a few more minutes here. Just prior to this passage, in Mark 10, 17 through 22, Jesus has finished talking to the rich man who had asked, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered him, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. You may remember the passage ends with the, young, with the rich man turning away, shocked and grieving, because he had many possessions. So that scriptural speed bump, which is also found in Luke 18, verse 22 to 23, will be covered by Pastor Sarah in greater detail in two weeks as we finish up this sermon series. Just to give you a preview of next Sunday, she's going to be preaching on wives should submit to their husbands. Did I say that? Okay. I'll be there taking notes, but... um, Anyway, I'm, I just uh, I can't wait to see what she does with that scriptural passage and definitely a huge speed bump next Sunday. But today I'm going to focus on what Jesus said next in this passage to the disciples. He pivoted from the rich man to the disciples and, the, and he's preaching to the larger church. And I'm reading now from Mark 10, verses 23 to 28. And uh, remember, the rich man had just turned away in his grief and shock. Of rejection. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, notice uh, children to the disciples, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then all bold cap text underlined, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were greatly astounded and said to one another, then who can be saved? 
Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. So here is another teaching moment for the disciples. But why does this passage still bother us? Isn't getting rich and wealthy part of the American dream? Don't we all need to make money, earn a living? And are, are, many, are many thousands of millionaires and hundreds of billionaires in this country all going to hell just for being rich? No. But let's dig a little deeper and first look at the cryptic phrase, camel and the eye of the needle. This has caused a lot of discussion and debate in Christianity down through the years as people have grappled with Jesus' words. <clears throat> the scene with Jesus and the rich man or rich young ruler and his phrase about the camel and the eye of the needle is found in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew 19.26, Luke 18.25, and Mark 10.25. So the camel was the largest animal in the Middle East at that time. So by stating that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, Jesus is using a hyperbole to suggest an impossibility, like it ain't going to happen. This is madness. It's crazy. However, some interpreters and scholars have suggested that the phrase is referencing a gate in the city of Jerusalem, narrow and much smaller than the regular city gate. The narrow gate would be used after sunset for security reasons. In this interpretation, for a camel to pass through the narrow gate, it would have to kneel and even offload most, if not all, of its cargo to get into the city center. This kneeling and stripping of cargo symbolizes a humbling of the rich who would thus enter into the kingdom, although in perhaps a state of contrition and even servitude. Many of you may remember this from Sunday school over the years about the separate gate that is used to humble the camel. And this analysis would thereby allow the rich a means of entering the kingdom of God. But there is no reference to this gate in any of the Bible scriptures. What is known is that there was a common belief in Jesus' time that the rich were closer to heaven than the poor, that they had special priority in their entrance to the kingdom based on their social standing and their wealth, i.e., you must be more godly because you are rich. People had come to accept this teaching by the rabbis that the rich would automatically be in the kingdom, primarily because of their wealth was seen as clear evidence of God's blessings on their lives. And poverty was seen as punishment for sin. The poor were called sinners. They were poor because they must have done something wrong. Sometimes, all too often, we are still guilty of this belief today. As we see the beggars on the streets in Charlottesville, or perhaps encounter homeless people on the downtown mall or other places that they gathered. They must be lazy. They must be slackers. But maybe the truth is the fact that a lot of them have mental health issues or have family issues that impoverish them. But in that day, to be poor was to be a sinner, and to be rich was to be close to the kingdom of God. Jesus makes it very clear that it's impossible for a rich man, or more accurately, one who trusts in riches, to enter the kingdom of God. So it's no wonder that the disciples were astounded at this comment from Jesus. He's turning the common beliefs and rabbinical teachings completely upside down. And they wonder, if it is that hard to get into the kingdom for the rich, what about the rest of us? cried the disciples, who did not have the wealth and power of the, elite, of the elites. Is Jesus teaching that we should not become rich or wealthy? own property or value possessions, 
that we should give it all away and embrace a life of poverty? Some in various religious orders do exactly that, even today. They take vows of poverty and spend their lives in prayer and service to the poor or sick. Obviously, Mother Teresa comes to mind immediately. But is having money a sin in the eyes of God? One online biblical interpreter uh, who has a blog, he's called, he calls himself Agape Geek, says that if having money, wealth, and possessions is a negative and a sin, then, quote, hell is full of Old Testament saints that were rich, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, and Solomon. Job and many others, they all possess great wealth in the Bible. And he went on to say in his blog, if great wealth is a sin, then why are the streets of heaven paved in gold? Who can be saved? Jesus' answer greatly astonished the disciples. It went against the conventional thinking of the day. In astonishment, they asked, who then could be saved? Who can enter the kingdom and obtain eternal life? They reasoned that if the rich people, including the super spiritual Pharisees, were unworthy of heaven, what about us poor people? If those who are righteous and blessed by God can hardly get in, who else can be saved? Jesus responds in verse 27 that salvation is by the grace of God. With man, this salvation is impossible, but not for God. For God, with all, for, for with God, all things are possible. In other words, God is a God who specializes in the impossible, as history reveals. And salvation is impossible apart from the work of God. If salvation is possible with God, then people, rich or poor, must seek it from God. And that requires complete self-surrender by faith to his will and his plan for our lives. Jesus was teaching that rich people must not trust in their money more than they trust in God, and they must not love their money and possessions more than they love their God. What a man values in this world is what he will be focused on in his heart. Everyone is going to have to choose between Jesus and money to determine what is more valuable and make it a priority in this life. In this lesson to his disciples in the church, Jesus is stating that people can still possess money and wealth, but that this money must not possess them, or they will never see the kingdom of God. There are several other parallel statements by Jesus about the subject of money. We're all familiar with Matthew 6:24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold on to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. If Jesus is your Lord, then your money cannot be your Lord. To love mammon is to turn away from God. Mammon is used by Jesus to signify money which has been objectified as a personification and to be worshipped. Jesus repeatedly warns us against the seductive power of possessions. The desire for them can separate us from God. Nelson Rockefeller, once one of the richest men in America, decades ago was asked, how much is enough? And I think we remember from one of Jim Chandler's sermons a few years ago, he replied, just a little bit more. I need just a little bit more. So we are caught up in the affluence of our society on an unprecedented scale. But I am not rich, we cry. Compared to who? Middle-income Americans are by far much richer in every material sense of the word over most of the rest of the world. Our materialistic culture is driven by a love of wealth. It has only increased in intensity over the past few decades with the increase in internet and social media pressures, increased pressure on our collective psychologies, 
triggered by advertising and relentless consumerism. We are chasing an elusive dream of materialism without looking at the cost to our well-being. And how many of you have ever seen a hearse with a U-Haul it hooked up to it? You can't take it with you. And the never-ending lists in the, in the media and on the news, the top 100 wealthy Americans, Forbes list of, of the world's billionaires. I went and checked this morning just for, just for grins. Jeff Bezos of Amazon is topping the list with $150 billion after he lost $9 billion last week with a little market correction. He lost $9 billion in one week. Bezos has passed Bill Gates at $90 billion and Warren Buffett at $85 billion for the title of the richest man in the world. And I have to add a little editorial comment here. It also said that for Bill Gates and his wife Melinda and Warren Buffett, each of them have given to date over $30 billion in charities, two charities. And if Bill and Melinda Gates are successful, they will probably have eradicated malaria in the world in their lifetime. But the lifestyles of the rich and famous just continue to, to chew at my ankles. I mean, it just, the HGTV shows and some of these other shows, uh, of course, I don't watch them. I just drop by as we are surfing, you know, to see it. Um, <laughs> mansions and properties completely over the top. Uh, Judy won't let me watch more than 10 seconds of it, but it's just amazing because <laughs> 20,000 square foot residence with something like 10 bedrooms and 20 bathrooms. You can't clean that many bathrooms in a week and an eight-car garage. Are you kidding me? As Arthur Simon wrote in his best-selling book, How Much is Enough, the problem is not that we have tried faith and found it wanting, but that we have tried mammon and found it addictive. And as a result, find following Christ inconvenient. We are a culture of ever-rising expectations. New and improved products become available, and people around us are buying them, creating a desire for the latest and greatest. A great example is the latest Apple iPhone frenzy last a few months. Maybe it was over the summer. Apple, was it 8 or 10? Or Apple 8 10X or Apple 10X? I forget. People lined up around the block for the latest and greatest, while I have my daytimer, 1980. I can't go online, I can't take pictures with it, but it's got a calendar and a day planner. I mean, for a guy like me, what more do you need? Anyway, <clears throat> my point is, we have to be careful about loving money and things and stuff over loving God. In another famous scripture, Acts 20, verse 35, Apostle Paul states, Remember the words Jesus said, It is more blessed to give than receive. Jesus wanted to change our purpose in life from one of getting to one of giving. Material possessions do not have to have a total hold and grip on us. How much richer are those who have gratitude for their blessings in their lives, who are generally happy in their work, in their level of comfort, and in their family relationships. These are the true treasures. It is not in the continuous accumulation of wealth and possessions. It is not more stuff. How many people have got storage sheds or had to go to storage, have had to go to storage sheds? We moved up here 17 years ago from uh, Alabama, retiring out of the Navy. Hey, it was a Navy move, so just pack it all in the 
in the truck and come on up to Crozet. I can't even remember. I'm embarrassed to tell you, it's probably around 17 or 18,000 pounds. But we had moved into a house up here, bought a house in Western Ridge that did not have an attic and didn't have a basement. So what do you do with that stuff? By the time the truck left, we could barely close the garage door. <laughs> I mean, we're like Japanese subway conductors pushing the boxes in to close the garage door. So what's the obvious solution? Get a storage shed. Put your stuff somewhere. And I don't even want to go into you folks that are putting college kids off to college and carrying stuff all over the place and packing stuff as you downsize into the lodge, as you downsize into other places. <clears throat> so the bottom line is it's not a sin to be rich or have wealth, but what is important is what one does with his wealth. And it is the love of money that is the sin. So what are we to do? We have real challenges in our personal financial lives. Not in any particular order, but listen to the order. The cost of raising children. The cost of paying the rent or mortgage. Saving for college. Saving for retirement. Spending in retirement on a fixed income. Healthcare costs. And, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot giving to the church. It is all about priorities and balance in our lives. And I can't forget the other dreaded B word, budget, our budgets. In our family, Judy and I struggled for years to turn that list around, to make giving to the church the first goal. Judy and I worked toward the tithe, quote unquote, toward the tithe, until we finally made the decision to put the church first and budget each month our 10% giving to the local church. But the balance in this comes in when you have to make choices. We chose to keep our cars a long time. Many of you do in this congregation. Now we have over 350,000 miles on two vehicles. But who knew after we made that choice that we would end up with a grandson who lives in Hawaii? Oh man, oh man. So now there's another choice, okay? Because we budget and plan for the one, possibly, two trips to Hawaii so Nona Judy can see her grandson. But the priority remains to God, and we'll defer the cars for another few years. <clears throat> when we joined the United Methodist Church, we pledged to support the church with our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness. Our gifts are where we give back to God in loving gratitude for all that we can, as much as we can, for God's kingdom on earth. And this is our challenge and responsibility. As John Wesley famously wrote, gain all you can, save all you can, so you can give all you can. Let us strive to live up to this model and realize that we are saved, truly and only, by the grace of God. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.